I'm Louise. And this is The Wife Who, the podcast where we learn about women. And teach each other about women. Yes, uh, women who did something interesting. Why is it called The Wife Who? We decided on The Wife Who because wife, W-Y-F, is the old English term for woman. Yeah, um, I like it because the word wife, when you hear that, certainly W-I-F-E, makes you think of the belonging of a man almost, doesn't it? possession. Yes, exactly. But actually the word wife, um, which we hear in Geordie nowadays, don't we, just to refer to a woman, um, originally it didn't mean a married woman, it just meant a woman. Um, I think it's actually Middle English from the Welsh. So yeah, welcome to The Wife Who, the podcast where we drink wine, maybe swear a bit, And we're not experts in the field. This is what we have to say. That's really important, actually. We're not experts in the field. And a lot of what we're going to be saying is blatantly ripped out of other people's uh, online blogs, good work, publications, books. Yes. Wikipedia. Yeah. Definitely Wikipedia. (laughs) And we will try and, what's the term, Um, credit everyone we use. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we're going to set up an online presence. Um, It's early days, but we will share where you can find all of this good information just as soon as we have somewhere to put it. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Have you heard of Margaret Cavendish, also known as Mad Madge? Mad Madge. Now, the Cavendish surname is familiar, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I've heard of Margaret Cavendish. Okay, so this, I must admit, I have largely ripped off from an audiobook. Um, and I will, of course, share which audiobook this was for anyone that's interested in it. Um, but I feel slightly bad because I'm basically just going to retell the story uh, in my own special way, just for you. Um, Margaret Ma- Cavendish was also known as Mad Madge. Mad match. Um, what year was she born? Okay, so she was sixteen twenty three to sixteen seventy three. I love that the name Madge was around then. Well, I don't think it actually was, to be honest. With you. <laughs> I think this might have just been something that the person that wrote this book um, maybe dubbed her. But she was genuinely called Mad, right, by more than one person, from what I can gather. Um, Okay, so I'll tell you first of all what she did, because that's why we're talking about her, because she did something interesting. She was a proto-feminist from the 1600s who possibly wrote the first sci-fi story. I'm not going to say novel because it wasn't really. Piece of prose. Um, Or certainly one of the first, and the first, as far as we know, female So, just for clarification, what is a proto-feminist? I knew you were going to ask me questions that I didn't know the answers to, but proto, I believe, means early, sort of pre... Before feminism was a thing, early days of standing up for, actually, we women deserve some equality here, um, but not understanding that that's what they were doing. Before the term almost came into being, of feminism. Yes. Um, But again... This whole, the point of this podcast is it's a learning curve and I don't really know. So we are learning about feminism. We are learning about women. Um, and after this, I'm going to go look it up and or everybody that listens to this is going to write in and tell us what it actually is. They're going to school us. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> They're going to take us to school. Um, but I still think this is good because we're learning about these amazing women. Even if it exposes our own ignorance, we're trying. 
Okay, so I'm going to tell you about Mad Madge. Um, it, not only did she write one of, certainly one of the first um, sci-fi stories, um, she also was a huge philosopher, a scientist, really influential writer, which at the time was amazing because she's a woman. It was a big deal. Is she British? She's British. I thought we should start with a British one. And was she allowed to go to... She wouldn't have gone to college. Uh-uh. So she was just taught no. to read and write at home yeah, by okay. a governess. Yes, you're exactly right. So all of the sort of pivotal... No, that's wrong immediately. So many pivotal figures in history were pivotal because they had the time, the luxury and the money behind them. They had... I mean, she is a picture of historical white privilege right here. And the support of a man who Uh, allowed her to learn to read and write. You are more right than you know. You have seen right ahead into this story. That is exactly true in this case. Um, But I don't want to hold that against her because, you know, you've got to take one fight at a time. We don't hold it against the Brontes. That's also true. Who we will definitely do on this podcast, by the way. (laughs) We'll come back to how much we both love them. So, yeah, she was... um, born into a rich royalist family. Her family were the Lucases. So she actually was born Margaret Lucas and they were a famous, um, famous, mm, they were a well-known rich um, family who were known to the court of the king at the time. Um, And they were in favor. But this period of time was when um, we had the civil war. So the fact that they were staunch, royalist, rich, elitist people actually caused a lot of strife and trouble in her life, um, which we will come to. Her childhood, however, she was born to one of, she was one of eight siblings. Five were boys. And of course, they all went to Cambridge and had the full education. Of course they did. Of course they did. They were boys. Because they were boys. Yes. Uh, But she and her two sisters... Uh, were schooled at home by a governor. As I, I think she actually described the the governess as being an old, um, gnarled woman or something like that. She didn't think much of her, um, but she got um, schooled in all of the appropriate lady type needlework. Yes, well done, needlework. Yes, any anything else? <laughs> Drawing, uh, singing, playing singing. the piano. Yes, yes, singing, dancing, music. Uh, it's like needlework. Out of a Jane Austen book, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, but even earlier than that, of course. And to be fair, let's give them some credit reading and even writing, which actually around that time, it was relatively common for ladies to be taught to read, but not necessarily write. Um, because why would a woman need to write anything ever? So, but she did get that. Uh, not a lot of it, but she got a bit of it. We'll come on to that later because it does matter. So, um, they were, as I said, one of the wealthiest families, um, I think in the country, certainly in their area. Um, Where did they live? In Essex. Um, did she they was have... an Essex girl. She was an Essex girl. Oh my God, yeah, you're right. Um, I suspect she wouldn't have sounded like your classic Essex girl, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, in 1597... Her father was actually banished by Elizabeth the First. Whoa. Yeah, that's quite fun, isn't it? Banished where? Um, I don't know, actually. In Britain. I don't know. Banished from the court, certainly. I wonder if he was banished from the country. Was I don't he know. Catholic? 
You're asking me questions I don't know the answers to. Um, was the Queen... They were staunch royalists, so they basically would have had the same religion as whatever the kings and queens at the time had. And this is pre-Oliver Cromwell. So remember Mary, Queen so, of Scots? Yeah, I She was Catholic and she got a head chopped off, didn't she? Because of the problems, the tensions between the Catholics and the Church of England. I mean, none All of right this then. really matters. I was just wondering if he was banished for religious oh, reasons. Oh, I see what you mean. Or was he banished for some kind of scandal? Okay, so I've shown my ignorance even more than I thought was possible. But uh, yeah, no, not because of that. He was actually banished for quite an amazing thing. Um, he killed one of Elizabeth I's court favourites in a duel. Right. I mean, that's kind of cool in a way. Yeah. Wait, am I allowed to say that? I mean, it was a duel, <laughs> so it was a fair fight. And he was yeah. banished? He was banished because it was one of Elizabeth I's favourite I don't men. think that's very fair of Liz. Well, she's not known for being the fairest of them all. Um, but yeah, that happened. Unfortunately for poor um, Henry Lucas, I think he was a Henry might have made that up if you're looking for facts and figures here folks like you've come to the wrong place um i'm doing my best but we are not learned we're learning uh okay so mr lucas we'll call him um unfortunately had already knocked up his wife elizabeth before they got married and ouch yeah and then he got banished before they had a chance to get married ouch. at the time this was not cool obviously these days no problem that wasn't even cool 30 years ago. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah, so uh, that sucked. However, somehow, when Elizabeth I got the boot and it was um, James I came in, when he succeeded, um, the dad was pardoned, came back, and was allowed to marry his now, wife. then wife. Now wife. Now wife. Um, and they had seven more kids, so thus along came Margaret Cavendish. And what number was she in the line? She was the youngest. Was she? Yeah. Mm. I can relate. They're always She was the precious one. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, but anyway, all of this crazy stuff happened. And yet, when she was two, her dad died. Don't ask me how, because I don't know. Do we know how old he was by this point? No. I'm sorry, I don't know. Um, But she was only two. And what happened was, because her the eldest boy was still not old enough to take on the management of the estate, um, the wife, Elizabeth, took over the housekeeping, the management of the estates. It was until... a matriarchal estate. It was indeed. And what's more, Elizabeth, turns out, she was pretty good at it. So she took it on and she started turning this estate into a thriving so she was a grieving widow, but yeah. she totally turned with, it around. With eight children, by the way. She's a badass single mum. Exactly. That's the whole point, is that, um, God bless her, Margaret had an actually really amazing role model from the age of two. Her mum just proved that women can do what men can she do. She was a working single mother. Yeah. So, as I say, um, she didn't get the education she wanted, to, wanted, but at least she had this great role model. Um... But she soon discovered that she wasn't particularly interested in singing, dancing and needlework. In fact, she preferred to write. So... Who did she think she was? I know, how very dare she, right? Um, (laughs) So she 
even in when she was quite young, she wrote 16 of what are called baby books that contained a whole series of rambling stories and poetry and all sorts of works. Um, they unfortunately haven't survived, but I think it's because um, Margaret thought they were a bit rubbish. So she just got rid of them later in life. I mean... We all hate things we write in our teens. It's true. Actually, I came across a, a diary. Uh, my mum, even worse, my mum came across a diary that I'd written in my sort of early teenage or maybe 10, 11 year old. So embarrassing. So embarrassing. Anyway. Um, so she, she's known at this point. So let's say she's 16-ish. And she's discovered that rather than... Um, getting involved in sort of lady style pursuits she is very much um, an introvert she doesn't want to engage in um, sort of social niceties she's actually cripplingly shy and she expresses herself through writing and she and this sort of bold creative sense of style that kind of comes out in her outfits a little bit so she designs her own outfits for so herself. she expressed herself physically through clothes yeah but in a weird way like not like a normal lady would have done but Could she wear trousers no oh. definitely no although it's commented that her she invented outfits herself with a masculine edge to express herself which is mm. a little daring was she gay no oh. as far as we know although one does begin to question it later when you hear about the sort of thing she wrote about so we'll come on to that okay so in 1642 um that's when the civil war broke out and the family suddenly became really unpopular because all the locals know them as this big royalist family no one likes rich people no one likes rich people anyway but especially not when you've got civil war and um yeah the regime their involvement in Charles the First court and the regime and everything means they get booted out they actually get imprisoned the women get imprisoned and um the eldest son who of course is coming of age to the estate um gets held in the tower of london for a month mm-hmm. um margaret meanwhile had a total girl crush on the queen the queen is a french um Aristocrat. This is Charles the First. Yes. Or James. No, this is Charles at this Charles point. Charles the First. Uh, wife. His wife. Um, Marie Francoise. Oh no, I'm gonna, we're going to get people writing in. Marie Francoise. Something like that. Oh no, you and I, I bet I've got that totally wrong. Should have written that down. Anyway, she thinks that um, this French queen is amazing, so she offers her services as a maid of honor at court. Thinks this is a really cool thing to do. Well done. Yeah, I think that's great. But the problem is... Lots of singing? Possibly, yes. And certainly courtly-type behaviour and charming and dazzling with your wits and humour and being all girlish and... Boring! Turns out she wasn't so into it. So she begged to go to the Queen's Court. She was accepted there. And when she got there, her crippling shyness really held her back and she then begged to come home again. Um... Now, I'm not clear on the timeline here, whether or not this is before or after the Civil War breaking out. It must have been around the same sort of time. Um, But essentially, her mum said to her, look, you've just gone to the Queen's Court. It would be a disgrace to the family if we let you come home after so short a time. You're going to stay there. And then before long, the Queen is banished. because, Well, basically, she has to flee because there's a price on her head for having... um, 
convinced Charles I to, well, just... She, she's all French and, you know, wanting to spend money and do lovely, aristocratic, rich-type things. Let them eat cake, that kind of... Uh, <laughs> yes, that attitude. type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the people hate her and they they force her out of the country. She So at this point, Margaret's in with all these women in a situation she's not loving that much um, and she is now being forced to flee for her life. So it's pretty quickly gone downhill. It's no, gone but, sour. Yeah, yeah. It went south pretty quickly. Um, and literally, actually, because they flew down south to Falmouth and then crossed into France... Um, in 1644 Um, and apparently their enemies were in hot pursuit at this point and actually followed them across the water firing shots at them as they went and it was all really quite dramatic so this actually features in Margaret's writings later where she has these heroines that have these dramatic crazy escapes um, escapes yeah exactly adventures so she's now 21 and she's a refugee she's in exile in France She's had a lot of shit happen to her already. Yeah, and for a shy little girl, it comes a bit of a shock, mm. I think. Can, I assume she can speak French. Yeah, I would assume so as well, although I'm assuming. Every schoolgirl with a governess can speak French. Surely, surely. If she couldn't before, I bet she does now, because she's having to live there for quite some time, as it turns out. So, she is now at the King Louis XIV court at the Louvre, in Paris. The Sun King, I believe. Yeah, yeah. well, that was one of the Louis. I don't know which one. I do believe he might have been Louis the Fourteenth. I think you're probably right. I mean, we've been to the Louvre together, so I'm quite ashamed. I don't know that. <laughs> ah, that was a good holiday, yeah. Um, so, yeah, now she's living the high life in France at the court of King Louis the Fourteenth. However, it's not so high because she is penniless her family have been kicked out of their home. Where are her family at this point? They're, Still in Britain? Yeah, imprisoned or exiled in some way. Um, everybody's having a dreadful time. They've been kicked out of their family home and their property has been looted, ransacked um, and, and confiscated. So it's pretty bad. Yeah, they're definitely refugees. Yes. But... Now she meets William Cavendish. He Who is surely her future husband. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and he is the Duke of Newcastle. Whoa. Yes. Get out of town. Yes. Yeah, so for those, if anyone's listening at all, but if anyone's listening who doesn't know, uh, we are based in Newcastle upon time in the UK. So any link There was to... a Duke of Newcastle? Yep. There is no longer a Duke of Newcastle. There's a Duke of Northumberland. I wonder. I don't actually know that for sure. I wonder when we stopped having a Duke of Newcastle. Are you sure there's definitely not one? We'd know about it if there was. You say that. Everybody's writing in furiously right now. Okay. Um, So, spoiler alert, this means that she is the future Duchess of Newcastle Newcastle. that I'm telling you about here. Okay. So this Duke of Newcastle, he has also fled England um, and been kicked out of his home and had all those estates confiscated. He was rich. Um, he's the former tutor of Prince Charles, so he's a bit of an intellectual. Um, but he's like 30 years older than her. That's quite an age gap. Yeah, it is. It seems, to be honest, like they actually fell in love. Like, they had a lot in common. They were into poetry and literature and 
I don't know, plays and science and actually philosophy and all the sort of intellectual topics that he talked to her about, she reciprocated and was fascinated and she soaked it all up. And um, before long, apparently he was writing her passionate verses on a daily basis, which I just think is a lovely idea. So Of course he was. She was 21. Well, yeah. And he was 51. Good point. (laughs) You're right about that. Um, So she did resist a little bit. Um, Later on in life, she admits that she wasn't really keen on the idea of marriage. It was not something she had in mind. So (laughs) old-fashioned. Yeah, well, of course, this is the time when if you get married, you essentially lose all your rights as a human being. All of your property and rights to everything are immediately transferred to your husband. But you don't have any rights anyway. You are your father's property. You could be married off to anyone. To an extent, that's true. Although I believe there was a law about being... Oh, what was the phrase? It was like fam... It was something that meant like fam... Like a free woman. So you could... You had a right to sue and to... You know, you had a... You could go to court as a single woman and you had certain rights compared to a married woman who had zero rights. In the 1600s, you could go to court as a woman? Yeah, I think so. If uh, someone's spoken out against your reputation or something. You, wow. I, I think so. Um, I was uh, reading about Moll Cuthurst, who I hope to do some other time. Um, she was amazing. Mary Frith, um, really interesting person. And it talks about that quite a lot in there. Um, but definitely when you get married at this time, you become a non-entity. You can't even... Um, represent yourself in court as a witness or anything because a a married woman doesn't get a say, full stop. Sure. So she didn't want to do it, but seemingly she fell in love, you know? So she did it. Um, She, to be honest, made a good choice because it turns out he was was a pretty pretty good guy. He was a good guy. He was a good guy. And she is quoted to have written, um, where one husband proves good, a thousand prove bad. And she recognised that she was lucky that she found someone that supported her. And he really did, which you'll find out. So she felt the ratio was a thousand to one of bad guys to good guys. Yeah. How do we feel about that? Do we think that's changed? (laughs) Uh, Wine drinking pause there. Sorry, guys. That wasn't really me deliberating. (laughs) I think that has changed. What is it now? 500 to 1? <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. So, she is now Lady Cavendish, um, officially at the moment Marchioness of Newcastle. Marchioness? Marchioness. Um, she doesn't get to be a Duchess till later on, uh, when he gets a bit of an upgrade. Okay. I actually don't think he is a Duke at this point. He's later the Duke. I think he's um, an Earl or what's, the, I, don't know, I can't remember what the equivalent of a, the male version of a Marchioness. Marquis. The Marquis, like that the Marquis de Sade. So yeah, like the Marquis de Sade, I think it is. Um, so it sounds good, Lady Cavendish, but in reality, they have nothing because all of their properties are completely gone um, over to the parliamentarians or whoever, the roundheads, whoever. Um, now, he does have a brother, and his brother's estates haven't um, quite been confiscated yet. So in the early days, the brother is sending them money and they're living off that. So they have actually got a way to survive initially. But as time goes on, 
his property also gets confiscated and they genuinely go through periods where they don't know how to put bread on the table. They really do. Some days they pawn their clothes and everything. They have nothing, these people. So um, after two years, um, they, they've, they're managing to sort of live the high life, actually. They play host to these leading um, philosophers, writers, scientists of the day. People like Descartes, you've heard of Descartes? Oh yeah, yeah. French philosopher. Uh-huh. And Hobbes and various people. And I know these people from the Enlightenment. Oh, check you out. I think. Is that the kind of time? Ta- oh no, because the Enlightenment was more the 1700s. Mm. Okay, yeah, again, uh, so many people listening ashamed of us right now. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. But these are people that were hanging around because of her husband largely. Um, philosophizing, philosophizing, having all these new and interesting thoughts and debates on intellectual topics. And she sits in and is allowed to sit in and is part of the company. And she soaks up all of this debate and she is loving it. She's stimulated. Yep. It's a thriving atmosphere. Yep. So, um, usually at this point, women would be sent to the drawing room or what's, yes. the, what's the room they're always sent to the parlor to, to talk room. about women's things but <laughs> yes. she's actually allowed to stay and yes. contribute yeah exactly um so after two years they've been living this sort of cool society intellectual lifestyle and they haven't got any children and to be honest i get the impression that she really wasn't that bothered so how many years is this two years of marriage now my work as a fertility specialist mm. would say that Usually, I think it's about 98% of couples will conceive within two years. Yeah, and especially when you bear in mind that old 50-year-old over here, he already had a bunch of kids with somebody else. Did he now? Yeah, so not really sure what was going on there, but obviously she felt that it was her fault, but she wasn't... She, I don't think she really cared that much. She later wrote down um, that... Um, a woman, of course, hazards her life by bringing them into this world and has the greatest share of trouble in bringing them up. So I don't think she was that keen. She recognised her mother's strife. I think so. But it also says that um, in this book that she I, she must have either felt some pressure or felt guilty about it because she did go to a physician about it. And what it says is that she had to... In, in, she had to, I'm I'm stumbling because it's just so unpleasant, Lou. I mean, it's really so unpleasant. I'm going to read you the quote. Spa water and a brew of witch's herbs to be syringed into her uterus every night. Syringed. Syringed. Did they even have, yeah. it wouldn't have been abdominally, it would have been through the, uh, through the vagina and the cervix. That's right. So they syringed herbs into her uterus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't have been... Every night, Yeah, that wouldn't have been comfortable. That's now, like having a smear every night. Yeah, and even worse, it ain't even going to do anything. You're doing it for no reason. It's not helping. Well, yeah. They, they obviously thought it was, but... Tragic. It didn't lead to babies, did it? I think she wanted to provide babies for his sake, but in reality, um, was cool with it. I wonder if there was the equivalent of... Um, you know, women who put holes in condoms or forget mm-hmm. to take the pill, and the opposite of that, women who take the pill 
but pretend that they're What could ovulating. you have done in those days, though, really? What could she have done to try and prevent uh, childbirth? Because maybe she never actually wanted to get pregnant. I feel like she wouldn't have had the power. I feel like if anyone had the power to do that, it would have been him. Mm-hmm. And she was obviously trying, at least on the surface. To, you know what? We're spending way too long talking about her need to have children. Let's move on from it, because she wasn't it's that bothered. Work. It's my work. I know it is, yeah. <laughs> God love her. Right. Um, so... Unfortunately, although they were having quite a happy marriage and having kind of a good time, even though they were poor, by 1647, her sister and her mother had both died of consumption. So it wasn't a good time. Do we know how old they were? No. I don't have the um, ages, I'm afraid. And also, by the end of 1648, um, any royalist uprisings that year had been crushed so they were hoping that some rebellions would help get them back their land and get back to england but it was not no one happening wanted those rich fuckers back in and even worse her brother her eldest brother who led one rebellion the one who was in the tower of london yes he was executed by firing squad <sighs> without trial ouch yeah it was a painful time her eldest brother uh, a second eldest brother thomas would also die the next year so she she's out of the country and all these things are happening it's a strange time okay so the duke or the marquis and the ma what's her name the marchioness they're still living in yeah. france at this point in france okay. on basically nothing so they are like the um the people of newcastle only by name yes okay. exactly that um okay so then Charles I gets executed. And he's the only king, obviously, to have been executed in our history. And it was pretty momentous and not brilliant for the Newcastles at this point. Who called it? Who decided to cut off his hat? Uh, I believe it was the Oliver Cromwell crew, right? Okay. That's as far as we're going into that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's my... so interesting, though, to like think about these things in history. I mean, it's crazy. It really was a crazy time, um, and you'd think I'd know more because Oliver Cromwell was from more or less my hometown. I feel really bad about it, but history and me, not the best. He was from the Fens? Uh, yeah, he was born in Ely, or, or he lived in Ely anyway. Huh. There's, there's two museums um, in Ely to Oliver Who Cromwell. Who knew? Obviously everyone in Ely. Yeah, right. Okay, so now we've got some rebels trying to get Charles II onto the throne but it, it's not happening it just ain't going nowhere so charles called his son charles yeah 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 of course he did yeah of course he did <laughs> that was what you did um and then so she's in a situation her husband is now banished from the uk on pain of death if he goes back he will be killed um the brother his brother charles has to go back to england to petition for his estates to be given back to him now that things are starting to... There's a bit of upheaval. Who's going to give it back to him? Well, he re I think the idea was he would go back and sort of kowtow and say, oh, I'm sorry, and can I just have a little bit of money to live? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, so he thought he'd give it a go. And he also took Margaret with him back to England. Husband couldn't go because he would get killed immediately. But she had a right to petition for like a fifth of the property don't ask me the ins and outs but apparently this was oh. a thing so the brother took margaret back with him did they get it on no they didn't get it on <laughs> she actually really liked her husband i do believe it um so 
1651, they go back. So they get a boat yep. back to yep. England. Yep. They turn up to the court and she gets a big fat nope. No, you cannot. Your husband was in the king's inner circle and you knew it when you foolishly married him. Get out of our sight. So it did not go well for her. At least they didn't kill her. Yeah, I know, right. I was wondering <laughs> if that was a possibility, but no. They sent her away and she didn't even say a word while she was in court. She was just horrified by the whole thing. She now, not knowing really what else to do, holed herself up in London which was now an austere, puritanical place to be. There was certainly no having fun of any kind to be had. Was it like um, in Game of Thrones when... Uh, when winter comes, yes. No, when <laughs> um, before that, when uh, the High Eagle, or what's his name, when they take over, you know? And it oh, becomes yeah. like a religious... Yes, uh, yes. That's it, the um, High... Sparrow? Sparrow, well done. When they take over? Yes, it's like that. Nobody's wow. having any fun anymore. Theatres are closed. Maybe this is where George R. R. Martin got this idea. I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's based on the entire history of Britain in some way. So, yeah, I think you're right. Um, so, basically, she went and hid somewhere in London and began writing. And she made the decision, I am going to be a published author and I'm going to make money for us. She made that decision. And this was actually a really daring thing to do. So she decided to stay living in London and not return to her husband. I think she, maybe she couldn't go back yet for some reason, I'm not sure. But she took the decision, I am going to be a writer. Now, women weren't writers at the time. So there had been some women writers, but only you were only supposed to write on chaste, feminine subjects. Like needlework. Like needlework, mm -hmm. yes, and recipes. Of course. And um, poetry. Maybe singing. Yes, poetry, exactly. Um, on love and friendship. Maybe religious meditations. All things suitably feminine and chaste. Not science and philosophy and nature and all of these. Those are men's subjects. You're dead right, they are. They're for men only. So this was going to be... <laughs> are we having a drink pause? Cheers. Cheers. That was good. Okay, are you ready? So we know that she got a big fat no. So she's writing. She decided to write about science and That's nature right. and men's are. subjects. That's right. How very dare she. Okay, so now Margaret decides that she's going to write about things that men write about. Now, it's quite interesting. I'm going to tell you some of the statistics from the, um, the book that I read about her. So... Between 1616 and 1620, only eight titles were published by women. Out Between 16... It's four years from 1616. Okay. Only four titles were published by women. Eight titles eight. in four years. And what were these titles? Uh, I don't know. I don't have the titles, but there were 2,240 titles in total. And four, eight of them were by women? Yes. Okay. So... Slim pickings. Yeah. Then... In 1646 to 1650, so again, another four-year period, but 30 years later, 69 new titles by women. And apparently this is um, be because the Civil War created this weird sort of vacuum of, you know, um, author not authority, it's the wrong word, but it was like rules went out of the window. There, there was a sort of 
gap where people didn't know what was okay and not okay, so you kind of got away with a bit more. And they they took away some of the censorship laws. Um, so there were more publications in general, both by men and women, but women gained the most out of it. Wow. Yes, it's kind so of... the Civil War was actually really good for women at the time. Well, I think we might be putting it a bit too strongly, but in terms of publications, yes, um, I do think that's true. So women were producing these books. However, it didn't always go well. For example, there was Eleanor Davies who wrote Prophetical Visions. Her husband burned the manuscript, so that, that didn't go well. Elizabeth Avery... She wrote some sort of scriptures text. Her brother disowned her. And I quote, Your printing of a book beyond the custom of your sex doth rankly smell. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's good. Right? <laughs> Oosh. And then Ouch. Lady Mary Roth, who wrote a romance, Urania, in 1621. Urania. 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 Yeah. I don't know what it's about, but that's the title of it. And, uh... Some lord, fancy pants or another, was quoted as saying that she was a hermaphrodite in show. Indeed, a monster. Because how very dare she publish? Uh, she was so upset by this that she then denied like me. Writing it. Well, no, she said she wrote it, but she didn't really ever mean for it to be published. And she tried to withdraw it. I know, weak, right? <sighs> so women were now producing these books, but they were doing a lot of apologetic prefaces or only addressing their books to women or they were still sticking to the virtual or subjects. were they writing with a pseudonym yes yeah, sometimes and a male name mm-hmm. yeah i do think that was still happening um our madge on the other hand wow madge war madge none of it she was straight in there so she wrote in her own name unapologetically was writing about science and philosophy and all this stuff um and Actually, you know what? She did write prefaces, but I was talking to um, my partner earlier about this, and he said, have you ever tried to read a preface to a 17th century book, though? And I was like, well, no, obviously not. Um, And he said, actually, that it was very common at the time. It was like a style thing that you would write these long prefaces that are very downbeat and very like a justification for why you've wrote it yeah and kind of almost saying why it was a bit shit like it was just you're apologizing yeah it's like an apology before the actual text yeah and actually she did do this a little bit um and she talked down about her femininity which is not cool and i'm gonna read you some of the quotes of things that she said in these um so Although she wasn't afraid to write about these things, she did say, um, if I can find the quote, that it was against nature for a woman to spell right. That... Against nature? Yeah, I know. Um, Women are not naturally suited for intellectual pursuits. Yeah, and also she said, spinning to the fingers is more proper to our sex than studying or writing poetry. And she said, uh, addressing ladies who write, as though we be inferior to men, let us show ourselves to be a degree above beasts. Is she trying to be sarcastic? Originally, no, I don't think she is. So this is her very early. So she's written these two volumes, um, 
uh, what's it called? Something like Poems and Fancies is the first one that she publishes. And I do believe that when she first writes this, she is genuinely bashful and tentative and talks herself down. Um, and, and I do think that she, over time, grows in confidence. So initially, she's like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not as good as you men, but I'm having a go. I know. It's kind of sad. Um, I wonder if she did that just to enable it to be published. Yeah, you wonder a little bit. I'd like to think it was something like that. Because she was a bit of a badass. Later she was, but she had she needed time to grow into her confidence. And certainly the woman who wrote this book that I read seemed to take it as initially she doubted herself because it was so systemic, this misogyny that had gone on in society for so long that women just naturally believed that they were inferior, genuinely. And it was only over time that they, they realised... they were socialised to really believe that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. They were conditioned. And... They they did believe it. So I think that's probably true. So As a in, very quick aside, mm. can we just highlight that you keep saying the book that you've read. However, I do think it might be a book that you've listened to. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know why I keep saying so read. I listen to accuracy, it. I just want us to uh, point <laughs> out that you keep saying read. Yeah, I don't, you do mean listen to. I don't read books it anymore. It was an audio book. You're right. It's true. But it was also a real book. The book that you listen to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can also just, read. Just for accuracy. Yeah. Because I know that there'll be some really attentive listeners out there. You're dead right. Yeah. People will write in. I would. <laughs> so, her first um, publication talked about the elements, the universe, light, sound, matter, and motion. This is physics. Yes, it is. Was she a physicist? Well, she wasn't really a scientist. But yeah, these were all the things that these men around her had discussed. And she understood it. She got it. And she wrote it all down. And do you think she was thinking her audience was women or men? Men, I think. Okay. I do think. She saw herself as a superior woman over other women. Um, but inferior to yes, men? I think so. So she was trying to teach men about a subject that they were already... Well, not all men would have known. Uh, yeah, I don't really know what her motives were, per se, or, or what she perceived her audience to be. Um, but certainly she had something to say because these were the greatest thinkers of the time. She was pr in a privileged position. These were truly great intellectuals. So she was sharing these conversations. She was trying to share it with the common man. I guess so. She was trying to make money, really. But certainly she wrote about some amazing things and, crucially, atomism. So she actually wrote about atoms, about how everything is made up of these tiny little particles um, in the universe. In the 1600s? In the 1600s, wow. yeah. Um, this was a school of thought from ancient Greek philosophers, but it was having a bit of a revival at the time, was picked up again. There was um, one Dutch guy who apparently wrote that after reading this book, he was kept awake all night by uh, this amazing concept of um, Margaret Cavendish's atoms. He was so excited by it. So, you know, it really was well received in some quarters. In other quarters, though, not so much. Uh, uh, a woman is trying to tell us things. And also, women didn't like it either. Women thought she was nuts and that she was, like, dangerous. That there was something wrong with her. But that's, that's the same now, right? Yeah, kind of a little bit. I know what you mean. 
Um, I mean, this wasn't normal. This wasn't normal female behaviour. So everyone's looking at her going, she crazy. Why is she doing this? She's not interested in makeup or singing <laughs> or needlework. She's trying to talk about science and big yeah. things. And moral discourses on wealth and status and talking about parliament as a diseased body in need of a cure. Like, what is all this? Um, and she was quite atheistic as well. So it was all a bit controversial, uh, what she was writing about. She was atheistic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, she was. Very controversial back then. Um, oh, now, I want to find you this quote from this woman that really talked oh yeah here we go so this bitchy right well I, she probably wasn't a rival but this woman who was a lady of some sort wrote was she the katie hopkins of the time oh definitely yes she was she wrote to a friend to say they say that this book is 10 times more extravagant than her dress surely she is distracted she could never else be so ridiculous as to write books and in verse too i am satisfied that there are many soberer people in bedlam it's katie hopkins <laughs> Like, come on. Where is Bedlam in relation to Essex? Uh, it's in London, isn't it? It's uh, that... Is um, it where all the mad people mad, were? Yeah, exactly. Percent. Mad match. Right, I'm going to find you. Ah, yes. Okay, so she'd written these two books, and she was full of ideas. However, her writing was a bit shit. She couldn't really spell or and her grammar was i quote idiosyncratic and her punctuation was lacking and her meter was a bit rubbish did she not have a good editor well her editors had to pick up the sort of mess of a manuscript that they got and try to turn it into something readable legible yeah it was a bit unfortunate um, and, and she herself said, oh, you know, well, as a woman, you know, I can't possibly be expected to be good at, in all these things, technical. Um, I mean, fair point. She probably had uh, an education that was a little, little bit lacking. And that is exactly the point. It, what, she initially perceived herself to be less rational thinking than a man. So how can I possibly be expected to spell and everything? But it, over time, as she released more and more, and she actually released like... 23 books in the end and over time she did come to realize hold on i've got all this in my brain it's just that i was never educated properly she was prolific 23 23 books and actually that was over half the total number of books published by women between 1600 and 1640 were hers and that's pretty amazing okay so People are saying, we don't believe that this Margaret Cavendish really wrote these books because she's a woman, so she must have, she must just be nicking someone else's work and all this sort of thing. Her husband's happy to defend her. She's still in the UK for 18 months, but then she goes back. And I guess at this point it wasn't the UK. No, you're right. It wouldn't have been the UK. You're absolutely right. Um, But she now goes back to Antwerp. Uh, to see the husband because she's missed him yeah that's where they were staying so he's ah okay so from France they went to Belgium yeah they did um, because uh, there was an amazing estate that was the artist Rubens um, had this estate and basically the court decamped there more or less um, and so they were living there so she's now got a third book out and on the way and she finally gets back to see her husband 
the secret is now out that she's written these books and her husband is beautifully supportive. He gets it, he's a fan, he starts to help her um, with some prefaces and by helping edit some of her books and if stuff. If he had Facebook and Twitter, he would be sharing the shit out of Yes, this. he would. He is loving it. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, this is quite fun. When she gets back there, she goes to the little... I, I picture it as being like a treasure chest in the corner where she rifles through all her papers and she finds this collection of essays that she's like, oh, I can publish this collection of essays that I wrote. When she looks at it, it's so crap. It's like a collection of half-baked ideas and loads of just digression all over the place. Um, it doesn't really make any sense. She looks at it, she's horribly disappointed, disappointed by the whole thing, and she looks at it and goes, eh fuck it, I'm just going to post this out there anyway. So she publishes, she just literally sends this collection of just nonsense to her publisher. And they're like, all ah, right, another one from Margaret. Oh God, let's just publish it as it is. We won't even bother to edit it. <laughs> I think they must have edited it in a tiny way, but I mean, yeah, it was dreadful. And she called it the world's olio, because olio apparently is a word for a rich stew. So this is publication number... I think this is uh, fourth or fifth, something like that. Okay. Oh, so not actually that far into her whole yeah. history of publications. Uh, and at this point, she's quoted as saying, It cannot be expected I should write so wisely or wittily as men, being of the effeminate sex, whose brain's nature hath mixed with the coldest and softest elements. So she's still not getting it. She still thinks that she's stupid compared to men. Or is she just trying to pretend... That's what she thinks. Well, let me give you another quote and see what you think. Men have great reason not to let us into their governments, for there is great difference betwixt the masculine brain and the feminine. She says that men have the strength of an oak, whereas women have brains like willows, a, I quote, droopy. Uh, well, yes, yes. I quote, yielding vegetable. Madge, what are you doing? I know. Why are you talking down your sex so much? <sighs> Bloody patriarchy, I tell you. At this time, the brother-in-law dies back in the UK. Not the UK at the time. Probably. Might have been. Was it? I mean, James the When first. did it become the UK? I feel like James had a lot to do with that. Oh, everybody's going to be like, these people, seriously. Anyway, she continues to have intellectual friendships um, with people such as this guy, Constantine Hegan. H-Y-G-G-E-N, I think is how you spell this. He's a Dutch guy. And again, I asked um, Chris about this earlier and he said that this guy was amazing. He perfected his own telescopes and lenses and he discovered the rings of Saturn and Titan, which is the biggest solar system. I love that Chris knew about this guy. I know. He's, he's into all this. Um, he also developed the first pendulum clock. Wow. And then he basically did physics using mathematical formulas, which was immense at the time. So he's, he's a big guy, and she's hanging out with him. And what's his name again? Constantine Hugen. 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 Oh, no, everybody's writing, everybody's writing in like a hundred no, times. if we have a Dutch person who would like to correct us, please. Yes, no. please. Um, so it's now 1655, and she's publishing more philosophical and physical opinions this time. And this time, she dedicates it to Oxford and Cambridge. Which I find interesting. Oxbridge. 
She's yeah. dedicating her publication to yeah. Oxbridge. To the institutions that excluded her from being allowed to get an education. Is it sardonic? I like to think so. What do you think? Well, not every Oxbridge student comes out public, you know, publishing, do they? Exactly. Is it is it basically saying, hi guys, look what you missed out on. Uh-huh. This could have been yours. I like to th- I really want it to be that. I hope so. Because now she's starting to say... Hold on a minute. Oh, here's a great one. So she's realising that women just lack education. Actually, their brains... Her brain's perfectly good. And she says that they are like worms that only live in a dull earth of ignorance, for we are kept like birds in cages to hop up and down and not suffered to fly abroad. So she's saying, you you know, you're shackling us. Yeah, we are the gilded... In the gilded cage? Yes. Wasn't there that exhibition at the... um, Oh, where was that? The Lang Gallery recently, wasn't there? Um, An art exhibition about uh, women in gilded cages. Enchanted Interiors, it was called. Oh, wow. You not good to see that? Oh, no, I, I didn't. Take it. I'm sorry. Anyway, little sidebar there. Sorry, guys. Um, so now she is in full swing. She is delivering more and more books. She is prolific. And now she's starting to write about women's powerlessness. Whoa. Yeah. She's mm. turning suffragette. Yes, she is. She is turning badass. She is creating these revolutionary depictions of women. Some of them are like same-sex relationships, even. The men are not going to like this, and the women are not going to like this. Nope. She's creating these romance um, books where you've got these heroines that are intellectuals. And in what there's this one allegorical romance, I don't have a note of the name of it, annoyingly, but... I'm quoting from the book here that the the heroine is a gun-toting, cross-dressing, self-educated, gender-fluid heroine. I mean, that's major for the time. In the 1600s it is. Yeah. Um, She fights off this prince that's trying to rape her. Um, She outwits some cannibals. She leads an army in defense of this queen. And then the queen falls in love with her. This is like Joan of Arc stuff. I know. Joan of Arc, also really interesting, might do her in a future one, by the way. There's a lot more so. to her than I realised when I started to learn about her a little bit. I'm Which well up like... for Joan of Arc. Okay, awesome. We'll do that. So at this point, I have written, literally in my notes, I have written, wow. This is an amazing narrative that she's doing here. Um, the Queen concludes in this story that since they can't marry, because she can't be a husband, being female, she'll keep her anyway as her friend. Which, I mean, you've got a question. Yeah, Yeah, friends with benefits. Right. Um, (laughs) And the heroine is loved by her people. She says, heaven bless you, whatever sex you be. But at the end of the story, the heroine ends up in a wedding dress anyway, marrying her would-be rapist. I know. And apparently... the, the Same old, same old narrative. Yeah, the theory of the author of the book is that, you know, these heroines in stories were dangerous and, you know, threatened chaos to order. So actually, the writer always had to bring it home. So as not to be seen as a heretic, you had to make it good in the end to make it acceptable. So it was uh, Madge that wrote this ending? Yeah. Mm. Oh, Madge, letting down the but side. doesn't it remind you of Orlando a little bit? You know, that Virginia Woolf book? Mm. You, what do you mean, that Virginia Woolf book? 
Or you had to, you could stop at Orlando. I know, but we're not the only ones in this conversation. Other people <laughs> might not have necessarily read or heard of Orlando. For the record, myself and Caroline <laughs> were pretty obsessed with Orlando. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you're interested in Virginia Woolf, um, also look up Vita Sackville West. We had a little girl trip one time. We went and uh, checked out their homes. We probably will move on to Vita Sackville West at some point, won't we? Probably. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, she's now in a stage where she is creating these romance adventures, where she's putting herself as an intellectual hero into them. Um, she eventually goes on to write this amazing story called... Mm, oh my god, I can't find it. Oh, you know why? It's because it's in my other set of notes that I wrote on Let's the way Let's move on to the phone notes. Um, <laughs> called The Blazing World. And she actually introduces literally herself as coming in. So it's a similar story to the one I just described. Um, but this is the one where it's more like a sci-fi. It's set in a fantasy world in um, the North Pole. And there are men who are half fox, half man, ant men, bird men. They've all got different coloured skin, like purple skin and stuff. Um, and the Empress calls together all these great thinkers of the time to consult on all things academic and intellectual. Um, and eventually Margaret appears as a sort of spiritual guidance advisor type person and becomes the chief advisor and eventually becomes the sort of hero anyway. So in, in this story, this is amazing. She creates a sort of feminist utopia where it's run by women advised by women she even creates this like a uh, feminist religion that's like based around women um it, i mean it's wild make-believe this is amazing yeah it's incredible it's like woman or women on the edge of time yeah have you read that book no no I okay totally <laughs> i need to give you that book okay um people weren't necessarily a fan of this at all and uh, samuel peeps said uh, that it showed her to be a mad, conceited, ridiculous woman. <laughs> Who is Samuel Pepys? Uh, Samuel Pepys is a really famous diarist from the time. We know a lot about the 1600s because of Pepys' diaries. It does come up time and time again. He describes her in other situations. like She actually was the first woman to be admitted into the royal society that was set up by the king for you know intellectuals to all get together. And she was admitted. But How many women were none. admitted? So she was None. the first. She was the first. First and only. First, I don't know, no, later, presumably, they were. But she was the first one to be allowed entry to the premises. She turned up, and afterwards, Samuel Pepys was like, well, she was a disappointment. She didn't even have anything interesting to say, and she's meant to be this amazing author. He was so threatened by her. Yeah, I do. Um, anyway, so she wrote this amazing book. Um, but she also, weirdly, wrote an autobiography of herself. Now, this was a new thing. People didn't... Women didn't write autobiographies about their sort of prosaic, everyday life and existence. And how old was she when she wrote this autobiography? She was in her 40s, I think. Maybe mm. about 40. Was she reunited with the uh, Duke at this point? Yes. They did, in fact, manage to reunite. And actually, their life story gets a lot nicer um, because now the king is back in power. You know, we've had the whole Civil War thing. Oliver Cromwell has died. And this has left kind of a weird power vacuum. So the royals are back in charge. Everybody's just freaking out. And Parliament... Rich people have won again. Yeah. Yes, they have. Parliament unanimously vote for the, the king to come back. 
um, Charles II. So after 16 years away, Cavendish replies. Uh, replies. Returns. <laughs> returns. Oh my God. This is what happens when you drink wine. Um, Cavendish returns. Um, but he had to leave Madge behind him. Because, in Antwerp? Yeah, because they were in so much debt at this point, because they had no estates, they had no way of earning money apart from her books, um, that he had to leave her there until he could get money together, like borrow from the new king or whatever. And to bring her back. To bring her back, because she was basically, what do you call it when you... He was her pawn ticket. No, she was his pawn ticket. He had to leave her there. Um so that his creditors knew that he wasn't just going to cut and run. That is shocking. Yeah. But he does, yeah, they come back together eventually and he gets a decent position at the court. He becomes the Lord Lieutenant of Nottingham. He goes back. Nottingham? I know. Newcastle, Nottingham, <laughs> just because they both begin with N. <laughs> I think his, um, his, one of his, one of his estates is near um, Nottingham-ish. I'm not sure. So, but he goes back to this estate. In fact, uh, Welbeck in the Midlands, I have made a note, he goes back there, but it's in ruins. There's been ransacking, looting, burning. The people have moved in. Like, it's just absolutely destroyed. And she writes at some point that his um, loss from this period was almost a million pounds in money at the time. I mean, can you imagine? A not, million not pounds now. of money at the time. Then, yeah. So what would that be now? God only knows. It was £941,000. That is a lot of money. Yeah. So it took him two years to do this massive restoration project. Um, and then he also changed his will to make sure that she would be sorted for life after he died. Because, of course, he already had heirs through his previous yeah. marriage. And let's face it, at this point, he must be coming up to 90? No. He's... Um, I don't know, 60, I don't know how old he is. They met when she was 21. And he was 53. And she was writing things in her 40s about female utopia. Yeah, good point. I wonder if I've got my timeline a bit wrong there. He dies after her, which is kind of interesting. So she's... He outlives her. Yeah, he does. But he was fucking old compared to her. I know. So she writes her own autobiography. Then she also writes a biography of him, which is actually a really beautiful um, dedication to him. It it redresses his um, tarnished reputation from the period of the war, and it kind of sings his praise a lot. But let's face it, he probably hasn't done as amazing things as she has. Mm -mm. She wrote books. No. He hasn't. He really, really has not. Um, as far as we're concerned, anyway, I suppose, they might have thought differently. And actually, at the time, during her lifetime, her biography of him was the one piece of work for which she was taken the most seriously. Because she was writing about a man. Yeah, I think so. Anyway. So now she's doing things like a whole series of weird plays. They're all a bit abstract, a bit weird. But you're going to love this. Nearly all of the roles and lines are given to women, including warrior women who go to war and they go and live off away from men. They're all intellectuals. It's all amazing. But after the war's over, these women, she sends them back to their domestic duties. But why would they? I know. It's like the other book. Uh, she unshackles them and then she shackles them again. Yeah. And here's another example of that. Um, 
She's got another one called The Convent of Pleasure, uh, where this central character, Lady Happy... Um, the Convent of Pleasure? Yeah, but... Is this some kind of sex book? A little bit. So basically, um, it's about women talking about why marriage is a curse and childbirth is, like, dreadful. Um, there's this foreign masculine princess who Lady Happy falls in love with. And they actually kiss in the writing here, which is, that's a big deal. That's progressive for the 1600s. Yeah, she actually describes the kiss. But then at the end of it, it turns out that the princess was a prince after all. So it's like a massive cop-out. I know. No, don't worry, readers. She's not gay. (laughs) She's straight. Yeah, it's all a bit odd. Especially because I get the impression she genuinely was happily married. And she's decrying marriage in these writings and she's talking about these same-sex relationships it really makes you wonder she also did um revised editions of her early works she did a critical appraisal of shakespeare which i think might have been the first one well if shakespeare was writing in the 1600s and so was she maybe there wasn't a lot of time for appraising shakespeare Mm, i don't know when my dates are off again anyway by now she's attacking she's not just writing about philosophy she is attacking the leading male philosophers in her writing she's inviting them to respond to her and Good say lass. i know she's going no i think you're wrong this is what i think she's asking them to justify themselves yeah and at this point this is when the king now offers the proper dukedom to him, the Duke of Newcastle, and they become now two of the noblest people in the land. They haven't got much money, um, but they are now the Duke and Duchess of Newcastle. So is Newcastle pretty noble at this point? It's just a title. It's like the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge now, isn't it? They don't actually have anything to do with Cambridge. It's just a title. Okay. I think. They, They never go there. They don't live there. I'm pretty sure, yeah. It's just a thing. It's just no Billy. That is very disappointing. Honestly, the whole of the aristocracy is very disappointing. So no, wait, they're not living in Fenham. They're not living in Biker. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. They're not in Biker Grove. Definitely not. Okay, so sixteen sixty six is when she writes this, "The Blazing World," which is this amazing feminist utopia that I was telling you about. And this is the book that we think is certainly one of the first examples of sci fi probably the first example of sci-fi written by a woman ever is it still being published by penguin or (laughs) i don't know how do we get hold of this book i think we need to look it up um it sounds pretty crazy to be honest i mean mad mad it's going to be a bit crazy right but it is it is an amazing utopian world um let's repeat the title for all our listeners the blazing world okay but actually i don't know if it was a separate independent publication I think, I seem to remember that it was almost like an epistle, an epilogue or something like that. To another book? Yeah. It was something, I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up again. Guys, look it up and let us know. Um, But it was an amazing story. And I'm surprised. I remember it, I don't know about you, a sixth form doing English. I did a module on utopias and I did... um, In which subject? In English. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we, mod- ne- we never did anything that interesting. Yeah, we did Thomas More and we did um, Brave New World, obviously, and 1984. Mm-hmm. And we did Handmaid's Tale. That was the first time I read Handmaid's Tale. And that was the module. I'm, I feel like this should have featured. I agree. Feminist Utopia. 
Anyway, so she's done her own autobiography. She's done the biography. And she's a celebrity. At this point, she turns up in London. And people are so eager to catch a glimpse of the eccentric duchess who dresses like a you know weirdo she's got her own sense of style she's a bit shy never really appears in public and people are following her for miles she's got hundreds of you know people running around after her carriage is there like artist sketches of her because there won't have been photographs then i imagine yeah uh, yes i've seen a portrait of her in a book about philosophers that i was looking at as well so um, she's considered a philosopher yes oh wow. yeah she's got her own place in the annals of philosophy wow certainly um, Does that mean she came up with her own theories about philosophy? Or she just yeah. retold other people? She did. You know, I was saying when she was um, publishing her attacks on other philosophers, she was saying, I know you're, this is what philosophers do. They take each other's theories and then they go, ah, I take your point, but I think it's more like this. I take your point, but I raise you to this. Yes, exactly. That's what she was doing. Wow. And she genuinely, um, especially her thoughts on what's called materialism, which I think, again, is this business of atoms and how the world is put together. Philosophy and science were very closely intertwined. Yeah. Does this table exist? Yes. Is this table here? Yeah. Relativism? Yeah. Oh, my God, you know more about this than me. You and Chris should talk. Um, so she's, at this point, she's a celebrity and she's happily married. She's producing more and more radical works. And she's then, in her prime. Yeah. And she doesn't have kids. I know. Holding her back. And then in 1673, she dies, aged 50. She dies at 50 years old? Yes, she does. What from? TB? From what I can gather, she was feeling a bit depressed. And so she talked to a physician who recommended leeches and stuff, because that's what you did back then. So she's bloodletting, she's purging... And she's doing this a little bit too much, and she dies. That's what I can gather. She dies from a physician's intervention. A male physician's intervention. That is shocking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they didn't know. She becomes blood deficient because she's yeah. bleeding all over the fucking place. I think so, yeah. What a shit way to die. I, I really do think it was just a lack of medical knowledge, and she could have lived a lot longer. And because she was a bit depressed. I think that's what started it, yeah. Now, why was she depressed? Because she was at the height of her but she all was of, peaking. All of her family have died, remember? She's lost her husband by this point. No, he's still alive. He outlives her. Of course. Mm. So she's lost her family, but she's the Duchess of Newcastle. Mm-hmm. She's published 23 books. Yeah. I mean, she's seriously peaking here. Yeah. But she's depressed. That is really sad. Happens to the best of them. Mental health. They didn't know well, what to do. she's mad Madge. At least we know better than leeches and stuff now. So, yeah. At 50, she's gone. But she gets a full Westminster Abbey funeral. And her husband does everything that he possibly can um, to celebrate her life. He gathers together all of the writings of all the leading intellectuals and thinkers um, of the time of when she was alive and after her death of written... Um, uh, what do you call them? All the elegies. Yeah, elegies and poems in about her. Gathers them together um, and celebrates her. And then when he's 84, he dies. And they are side by side. How many now, years later did he die after he lost her? 
not long, like one or two years. Hmm. Because she was 50. He was how much older? He was 30 years older than her. Yeah, and she died at 50. He died at 84. So, so it must have been... So three years later. Three, uh, four years I think later. he was... I think uh, two, 32 years. I think, yeah, two years after then. So they're, bur- they're buried together? Yeah. Where? I'm not sure. I'm guessing somewhere near Westminster Abbey. Um... Well, maybe not necessarily, maybe on their land. I don't actually know exactly where they're buried, but I do know that on it there is, um, you know how sometimes you have these fancy statues that are on top of it and stuff, and she is depicted with um, a quill and some parchment, um, which obviously denotes... She's memorialised as a writer. Yes, which I think is really cool. Wow. And there is Wa Mad Madge. So, do you think... This this audiobook person mm. who shall we quickly attribute the name? Yeah, of let's the do that. I'm going to look it up because I really have ripped off so much. And thank you very much, Holly Kite. K-Y-T. Thank you for being a woman. So Holly Kite. Thank you. So do you think Holly gave um, Margaret this name, Mad Match? I think she might have done. And do we think that because she was a woman writing about these subjects and therefore she must be mad? No, no, we, we have evidence. She was quoted as being mad. She was called mad. What was the um, the quote from Samuel Pepys? That she was a mad raving... Yeah, but did he call her that just because she was a woman and oh, he, he was threatened by her? She's a woman writing, she has philosophical ideas. How very dare you? You must be mad. I think so. So Holly is maybe saying she was mad, mad madge? Just because she's a woman writing about these things. Yeah. Not because she actually ever demonstrated any kind of... Oh, God, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, she was known as a mad woman, but not in any real justified way. Just because she was not kind of performing as normal women. Conventional woman, exactly that. She was writing about same-sex relationships. Of course she was going to be considered mad at the time. Pretty impressive. Yeah. I feel like I want to see a picture of her. I feel like I now want to go and read a book about the blazing... I want to say blazing saddled, but it's actually like blazing kingdom or blazing worlds. Blazing Blazing world. world. Um, Let me see if I can find you. Of course, anyone that's listening isn't going to be able to see this picture, um, but I can show you a um, portrait of her. And of course, we'll add it onto any website that we have yet to set up. And in fact, we're not even 100% sure that this is even recording. But, you know, it's worth a go. Margaret Cavendish. Google portrait. Oh, wait, flight mode is on because we didn't want the phones to make any noise. Turn so flight mode off. We'll upload that okay. afterwards. But I'll show you a painting. I don't think she was, I mean, in terms of looks, it's not really discussed because it doesn't matter. I don't know whether she was a great beauty or whether she was a... That's not important. No. It doesn't matter. Her sense of dress was eccentric enough. It doesn't. I don't think it even mattered what she looked like. Um, oh, well, she was described as a comely woman. I don't even know what that means. Uh, comely, I think, is curvy. I think oh, really? it means homely. Mm, okay, that was what Samuel Bloody Peeps said anyway, and we don't like him, do we? So, so because I think it's almost like the opposite of Virginia Woolf. Okay. Virginia Woolf was angular mm-hmm. and tall. At least we're made to Shapely. think that because um, of Nicole Kidman, who yes. played Virginia well, Woolf. But she was, though. Virginia Woolf from yeah. the... Mm-hmm. And I don't think we ever think of uh, Virginia Woolf as comely. Mm-mm. Yeah, you're right about that. Okay, we'll share a picture of her so that everyone can see what she looked and, like. You know, why haven't we seen a film about her? 
you never know there's more of them coming out but this is why we're doing this podcast is because there are so many you know amazing women that we just don't know about until it comes up on like google and we're celebrating this amazing physicist's like death from 30 years ago that i'd never heard of before and i want to know about these women i want to explore them and actually, do you know what? If we're looking for sources, maybe we should use Google celebrations as a, as a way to find these women because so many times they come up and I just have never heard of them. Well, we'll have a good think about who we'll uh, talk about next then. We've run out of wine, but cheers anyway. Cheers.